Hello, this is Dr. Alan Darlington, and welcome to the Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. and all once again to the probiotic life i'm your host ben Klenner. today on the show i am excited to bring to you this interview i did with dr alan darlington uh, dr alan darlington is a plant physiologist or more than that but he got his phd in plant physi- physiology uh, at the university of guelph in ontario he was part of a research team looking at the use of biological life support systems for long-term space habitation. So he's actually the inventor of a number of patents that really helped uh, drive this plant-based biofilters for for the space habitation research. So he's got quite a few awards for his academic and entrepreneurial accomplishments. And... Until recently, he was working with Ned Law Living Wall Systems, so uh, Living Walls. So that's what we talk about today. Um, I am really interested since I read an article about these living walls because they're not just living walls, they're actually air biofilters. So we'll go into all of that today. Uh, Dr. Allen gives us a little bit of his uh, of his journey, how he got there. Uh, it does get a bit technical, but I totally nerd out on it, so... I really enjoyed this conversation and you will too if you really nerd out on the technical aspects of biofilters, of of the microbial world and bioremediation. If you have any suggestions for guests on the show, I'd love to hear from you. And in fact, I'd just love to hear from you anyways. Tell me uh, what you're doing to live a probiotic life, creating life around you. Uh, and let me know what you think about each of the episodes. I love the feedback. Uh, I really enjoy reading letters from people around the world. And I enjoy the fact that we're all working together in our own ways to create a probiotic life. So thanks to all who are supporting us on this journey and supporting me. You can financially support us at patreon.com slash probiotic life. And without further ado, let's get right into this conversation with Dr. Alan Darlington. Today, we're talking to a uh, doctorate of plant physiology. Dr. Alan Darlington is from Guelph, Ontario, and he has been working on living wall systems within buildings. Welcome to the show, Dr. Alan. Welcome. Glad to be here, Ben. And um, this has been an interview that I've been looking forward to for a while because uh, 
we're talking about the probiotic life and talking about how can we create life around us. And this is something that's always been fascinating to me is uh, living wall systems. And I saw some of your work uh, on a website somewhere. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Who's doing this? So uh, here we are. Uh, welcome, hmm. to, welcome to the probiotic life. Again, really glad to be here, Ben. And it's uh, the idea of integrating biology into the everyday life has been very important to me. So I'm really glad to see that you're working on the same sort of approach. Mm-hmm. And we'll get uh, right into some of the, the actual uh, specifics of what you're doing, but but we'd love to hear, we always like to hear a little bit of a story of, of how did you come to do what you are doing or, or what you have been doing. Um, so w- what really got you onto biofilters in the first place? It's a very convoluted path. Um, originally from a small town in the sort of north of Ontario, and I spent a lot of time as a youth just walking through the bush and enjoying how all the bits and pieces fit together. You know, the smallest insect and the biggest tree seemed to figure out a way to get along. Um, wanted to turn that into a career and thought the way to do that was through agriculture. So I, I did a degree in horticulture, which I liked because it was emphasizing the importance of the single plant. Every plant is valuable, so to speak, and it really taught the importance of how things got together. Um, what the my academic career, the first half of it was looking at how plants were influenced by their environment. I did a master's degree looking at how mycorrhizal fungi helped uh, conifer seedlings establish on metal contaminated sites, which was important for land reclamation associated with uh, hard rock mining. Um, And so I got that sort of environmental bug at that point. Uh, My PhD was looking at how atmospheric conditions uh, influence the the physiology and growth of plants. And it was, I mean, I was very fortunate. I was working with a a beautiful white rat, so to speak. I was using long stem roses as the test species. So um, every night I'd come home with three dozen long stem roses, uh, which made me very, (laughs) very well liked around the household. Um, (laughs) Lots of points. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was basically, it was really very exciting. It was looking at the physics of um, the plant's response to the environment, looking at, you know, the energy balances and the water relations and all of that. I took that and went to the University of Toronto, their forestry uh, faculty, and, and was looking at how um, seedlings can be modified in the greenhouse, conifer seedlings can be modified in the greenhouse using humidity to give them a better chance of survival when they're uh, transplanted with reforestation. And then my, um, while I was still at University of Toronto, uh, my PhD supervisor, Dr. Michael Dixon, had started a project at the University of Guelph using biological systems for long-term space habitation. And he invited me back to start working on that project. Um, what it was, was the rest of the group was trying to figure out how you grow tomatoes on Mars. I always use, I don't know if you remember the movie a few years ago, The Martian, mm-hmm. where, yeah. where they were, where the lab that I came out of at the University of Guelph that Dr. Dixon set up, always being set up as the training ground for Matt Damon, so to speak, is that's where the horticulturists for the 
NASA groups are, are, are to be trained. And so it was very exciting. And um, I was not working on food production. I was working on um, waste disposal, in particular air quality, seeing if we can use biological systems to, to maintain uh, air quality in, in closed environments. And we worked on that for, and this was actually like quite a while ago, I guess, actually, this, this, this was during the early 90s that we were doing this project. And from for the next seven years, we basically refined the technology and, and early, early in it realized that there was a huge application for it down here. I guess that one of my favorite stories is that um, while we were working on this, we were getting uh, a lot of attention because we were getting very interesting results. Um, the University of Guelph was doing a, a new campus, a, a satellite campus in the Toronto area, and, and Diamond and Schmidt Architects in Toronto were commissioned to put in a new building on the university behalf. They were interested in sh uh, showcasing some of the technologies that were being worked on at the university in a, in a real world setting. So they called a meeting and invited us researchers. They had all the university hire people, the president, the vice president, and all those there at the meeting. And they asked if we thought that the technology we were, were developing would be ready for a real world setting. And being true academics, we all sat there and said, oh, yes, yes, it, this, could, this could work in the real world. <laughs> and, and then somebody said, well, who's going to do it? <laughs> and uh, 20 years later, here I am still doing it. So uh, I really got to hand it to uh, Diamond and Schmidt Architects and Birgit and uh, Sieber and Don, uh, Donald Schmidt specifically for getting me uh, out of the academic world and into the real world of business and, and taking a, an idea and trying to make it work in the real world. And it's just been a heck of an adventure since then. Yeah. And it seems like you've done uh, installations all over the place now, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. We've done... Um, uh, we, we most of the projects have centered around the Toronto area where we're basically working out of, but we've done across North America into Europe, the Middle East, and we have uh, design projects uh, happening in China now as well and uh, other parts of the world as well. So it really has caught on and really made a, a difference, and it's kind of neat to be there right from the very beginning. Mm, mm -hmm. and, and can you explain to us a little bit about what is actually this technology of living walls? And it's not just sure. living walls, is it? No, no. And that's actually, I think, the big separator from what we do and everybody else. Just to step back a bit and try and give a, um, an overview, um, we spend all of our time indoors. Uh, one thing I like to do when I give lectures on this sort of thing is almost irrespective of the group is ask how many people in the group have spent more than five hours outside in the last 24 hours. And uh, basically nobody, um, you know, and it, it could be whether I'm talking to students at the university or a gardening group is we, you know, nobody spends time outdoors. We spend all of our time indoors. Uh, mm. We live in this artificial environment. And I'm not really, uh, I, I, I got a great deal of confidence in the quality of the indoor space. I mean, the air quality indoors is fantastic, but problem is it's expensive to maintain um you know that people building materials uh, furniture all give off gases uh vocs volatile organic compounds and these gases can accumulate to the point of being 
detrimental to the occupants unless it's gotten rid of and the traditional way of getting rid of it is through ventilation. It's the old solution to pollution is dilution. So they basically bring in outside air and push the garbage outside. And it works well. I mean, it works very well. But the problem is that, uh, you know, here in Ontario, we range from, well, I think this week we were into the mid to high 30s uh, Celsius. And in the winter, we could be down minus 30. Uh, so you have to condition that additional air before bringing it into the building. And that conditioning the air can represent 30% of the energy consumed by the building just to maintain the air quality people need. So our idea is do we really have to go outside to get the fresh air or can we generate it inside the building uh, using natural processes? If you could take the air that's circulating around the building that's already at the right temperature and get rid of the garbage in it, it's sort of like uh, uh, creating virtual outside air. And that's what the technology is trying to do, or what it does do, I guess. Um, it does generate virtual outside air. And, and it's, it, you're right in saying that it looks like a, a, a living wall of plants. But it's actually a, a fairly sophisticated piece of equipment. It is a combination of three fairly widely used uh, technologies that have been repackaged for use in the indoor environment. The first one is biofiltration. And this is more of an industrial technology where um, they pass contaminated air or water through a biologically active zone where the beneficial microbes take the contaminants and literally eat them. Um, I will always use as an example, if you're outside and you have your coffee and biscuits in the morning and you drop a few crumbs on the ground, you don't really have to worry about sweeping up the crumbs because the ants come and take it away for you. And that's exactly what happens in a biofilter, except instead of dropping crumbs, you release volatile organic compounds like benzene or formaldehyde or toluene and all those nasty sounding things. And instead of having the ants come and take it away, there are microbes in the system that eat the, those chemicals and break them down to nothing more than CO2 or water. So it's a very sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly way of getting rid of some pretty nasty compounds. And it's widely used in industry. Uh, so that's the first technology. The second is phytoremediation, which is more of a brownfield technology. And brownfields are contaminated soils, uh, you know, whether it's with organic compounds, what they find is that given enough time, those contaminated soils tend to want to heal themselves and recover. If they integrate, and that's again using microbes and all those sort of things. Um, if you integrate green plants into the recovery, it will facilitate and speed up the process. Uh, the plants may take up the contaminants directly, or they may simply facilitate the growth of those beneficial microbes. And so that's what we've done is we've created a biofilter and act, uh, incorporated into it these green plants to increase the growth of those beneficial microbes. And the third technology is uh, hydroponics, which is what we're using as the media for holding those two other technologies together. Basically, it's a wall of uh, a porous growth media with the water circulating through it and the plants growing in the media, and we're actively drawing the air 
of the building through that plant wall. And as the air goes through, it comes in contact with the microbes growing in the root zone. And those microbes break down the contaminants. And then you can turn that refreshed air back to the occupants and improve the performance of the building. Um, one of the things is, is people think that it's the plants that are cleaning the air, and it's really not. It's the microbes. The plants are creating the environment where the microbes can do their work uh, far more efficiently. But really, all they're doing is just making the system work more efficiently. They're, they're enabling the microbes to do their work, which is actually cleaning the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it reminds me of when I got into um, aquaponics, you know, uh, probably eight or nine years ago now. I wanted to grow some some uh, veggies in a cool way, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool." And the more I learned about it, I realized it's not the the fish that are feeding the plants; it's actually the microbes that are turning those um, the ammonia to nitrites to nitrates, and it's the microbes that actually, yeah, um, power the whole system. And this is basically the same uh, similar thing here, isn't it? Right, and exactly, exactly. Again, with the aquaponics, the the microbes need stuff from the plants. Is that the plants create the environment where those uh, denitrifiers can do their their work better? Um, and I guess you know, in a certain extent, they can take some of the, the the plants may be able to take some of the ammonia up themselves. But really, what they're doing is creating the environment for the the microbes to do their work. Very similar. Mm -hmm. the, you know, that's the other one is the um, Green machines. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no, green machine. Yeah, it is a sewage um, treatment system where they uh, use um, greenhouse plants and a hydroponic system for turning uh, sewage waste into the surface runoff quality water. And it's all the plants and the microbes and all those things that are pulling out all the rubbish out of the water to get it to the point where you can just put it back into the stream sort of thing. And, and what they're doing with the water is basically what we're doing with the air, using letting the plants and the microbes clean it up so we can reuse it. Mm -hmm. We've actually recently uh, talked to uh, someone here in Perth who does uh, uh, water reuse systems, so uh, grey water and black water, and he was um, basically, we were talking about that, but the, the fascinating thing to me and the thing that was a real a revelation when I started aquaponics was it actually all comes back to the microbes. And, you know, I, I teach uh, composting workshops, same thing. It's the microbes that break down and it's also the healthy soil that's filtering that water, uh, cleaning it up, um, and in your case, cleaning the, the air as well. So is was there any, like, one point in along this journey that we've been talking about that you really – was like an aha moment to you sure yeah um well i guess um two stories is the one with the the green plants is there was the whole story about spider plants cleaning indoor air um and i the the chap who did the, the research uh really have to hand it to him because it was very uh, revolutionary to think about using plants this way but basically what he did is he took a spider plant and put it in a plexiglass box and gave it a shot of formaldehyde that could literally kill a horse. Uh, it was extremely high concentration, then watched how fast it disappeared. 
and then he took the plant out and gave the same concentration and it disappeared more slowly and he said ha ha the plants are pulling out the uh, formaldehyde and that was out there and it's it's accepted as common knowledge and it, it really isn't that simple uh, in a matter of a couple years later another researcher repeated the experiment uh, put the uh, formaldehyde in the box watched how fast it disappeared put the plant in it disappeared faster took the plant cut off the green bits and just put the pot back in the chamber and it disappeared even faster and so he was saying you know it's all in the soil everything's oh, happening interesting you know it's just it's the microbes it's it's that whole biota that's cleaning it and uh, for me like with our research one one thing that we uh, with all biofilters how they actually start up and they 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 start to deal with the rubbish is one of those things that uh it's very exciting and what happens is the first day you treat it with the chemicals it might remove a little bit but the second day it removes a bit more and the third day a bit more and a fourth it just accelerates for about two weeks and it's very hard to imagine uh anything else but a microbial adaptations that are leading to these uh acceleration and removal rates like if it was simply just being absorbed the chemicals were just being absorbed by the plants or the water it would actually slow down over time and, and these systems accelerate it's very exciting so that was you know for me personally seeing that acceleration in how uh, this capacity builds up over a matter of a few days uh, it was one of those moments when i thought wow this is this is exciting this is very cool and was it at that point when uh, where you were working on the um, for, for plants in space? Is that the sort yeah. of time period? Yeah, that was yeah, that was when we were still just trying to figure out if this technology has legs, so to speak. Um, if and that we that was a pretty good indication that uh, it, it held pretty good promise. Um, and the other one is just how effective it is uh, um, that it can remove. Um, it can generate a lot of air very effectively, like one square meter of biofilter can gen generate enough virtual outside air for five to seven people. Uh, and it's very, you know, that's, that's a lot of outside air that you're diverting from your system and, and a lot of energy you're potentially saving. Mm, so mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that's, that could be scalable or downscaled to a, you know, a, a home size. And that's, something that I've been thinking about for at least a couple of years now, once I realized that they use biofilters in um, when they're doing um, organic waste, or I guess composting on a, on a large scale, some, some of them use ex extractors and put that through a biofilter. And yes. then I was like, Oh wow. I wonder if I could do that at home. And so I've been playing around a little bit with my um, aquaponics, which is not technically an aquaponics anymore because it doesn't have fish in it, but uh, the same or, or I guess you could call it organic hydroponics. So, exactly. so I'm, I'm very, very interested in um, that whole idea. And to me, the fascination comes back to, oh, it's actually the, the microbes, the microbes, and we don't even really understand how they're filtering, but they're filtering all these um, toxic, um, poisonous uh, chemicals. Um, so actually you share with us a little bit about VOCs because I've, I've heard that in carpet they, they can be released for up to 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is. They are everywhere. Um, it's the nice thing, again, is that uh, the way building codes are going, 
Uh, they are much more concerned about it than they were 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, there are low VOC construction uh, standards now so that, you know, like the paints uh, don't stink as much as they did 20 years ago because they've reduced the amount of VOCs. But the, the there are several sources of VOCs in the building. And, and I think of them as the stinks and the smells. Um, everything from the printer in your office to the cleaning solutions that you use are sources of VOCs. Um, the paints, the electrical wire computers are terrible sources of VOCs. And again, you know, that's the, the computer smell and that's the chemicals that it's adding to the air. Uh, there was an interesting study done where they compared a uh, building that was constructed using low VOC methods. And the low VOC building had a, a much, much lower VOC concentration in the air initially. Uh, but what happened with the typical one is the, the uh, VOCs off-gassed over time. So the concentrations decreased to uh, over the next first three years or so. But the thing was with the low VOC building, the concentrations actually increased as people brought in VOC sources. And again, like the cleaning solutions, the computers, the rugs, even people themselves uh, give off VOCs. And so what happened is after three or four years, the, the VOC levels in the buildings were, were identical. Um, you know, the important thing is that Generally speaking, the VOCs, I, I don't like to be a fear monger and say that, you know, the air quality is going to kill us all. It's quite the opposite. I think it's fine. Um, but it is expensive to maintain. Um, you know, people, the people who run the buildings have to choose between supplying good quality air and running an efficient building. So what we're trying to do is you, you can't have both. You can't have an efficient energy building and a uh, good quality air by using biofilters. Mm-hmm. So, so this is when you really formed your um, business air quality solutions and, and this is the, the basis of what you're doing is providing fresh air, a- outdoor or fresh air in, uh, in office buildings pretty much. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I, I like to refer to it as virtual outside air because it, it's the same quality but not this, the expense of having to uh, treat it. You don't have to heat it or cool to the same extent as normal outside air when it comes into the space. Um, the one thing you were asked, you made the comment about the microbes and the that I, I just blows me away, so to speak. Um, we have a contact time between our biofilter and the air as it passes through of less than a second, maybe half a second, just with the velocities we're dealing with. And in that half second, we can remove 90% of the formaldehyde and 50% of the polyurethane with just a single pass. And it, how fast it happens is absolutely astounding. And those microbes are there, and they're prepared to just chomp on it and, and get rid of it. Um, and, so, and it's to a certain extent. I mean, I have some microbial background. I'm mainly a plant person. So I've largely looked at that half second contact time is a black box you know garbage goes in this side and it doesn't come out that side it's absolutely astounding what the microbes can do it's it's truly um yeah it's amazing and it, and it's both uh, bacteria and fungi in our system i'd say probably 70 percent 
maybe 80% of the degradation is bacterial and, and the remainder is fungal. Uh, we tend to run our biofilters more alkaline, a little higher pH than uh, the plants would normally like. We tend to run them around a pH of 7 or 8, whereas most agricultural systems, hydroponic systems, are down around 6 or 6.5. And that's because we're, we're growing microbes. We're not growing uh, plants. You know, the end product is the clean air, not the plants themselves. They are just a vehicle to get there. Interesting. So, are you using um, organic inputs to, for the for the plants? Because it, it looks like you you saw that you've got uh, a variety of uh, plants that are perennial plants. Um, what? Yeah. What are the inputs that you're using for these? We are using um, to date. I haven't found a I like to say it, but a good organic source uh, for nutrients. We are using standard greenhouse uh, petrochemical fertilizers, very low concentrations compared, to, again, to agricultural systems. We want to uh, keep the system hungry, so to speak. We run the uh, the walls themselves are basically, in terms of their maintenance, are basically organic uh, in terms of the pest control and such. Uh, we don't, you know, it doesn't make sense to be using these walls to improve air quality and then to be spraying it with DDT to get rid of any aphids that come along. So, mm-hmm. so it is, it is, you know, uh, we try to keep it so that anybody can look after it and the technology required is easiest if you're just using standard greenhouse um, fertilizers. Yeah, I can imagine if you if you have a, a building maintenance person, you don't want to have have to say, oh, I need to keep your eye on uh, this and uh, make sure it's not, the plants aren't doing this. It's just like, okay, just use however many mils of this per week. Yeah, and, and it's always the same. We know where we can get it and we can get it anywhere in the world. So, and that's the one thing. And we've tried to keep the technology as, as off the shelf as possible so that people anywhere across North America or around the world can easily get the parts that we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is the part where I've uh, diverged a little bit with the um, um, bioponic system that I was mentioning before. has been using um, a lot of things to try it out. In, um, I make bokashi and using bokashi leachate. So that's got, you know, all the different um, purple non-sulfur bacteria and saccharomyces, all those different things in there to try and uh, kick the system along as well as some of the Korean natural farming um, inputs that are uh, concentrated microbial inputs as well. Is, yeah. is been- uh, we don't, yeah, we don't um, inoculate our systems with microbes. Uh, we, all of the microbes that we use are naturally occurring in the system. They either come in on the roots of the plants, uh, the, the media, or are picked up by drawing the air through it. Uh, it's, it's, and we've never had a biofilter that didn't kick in because their microbes weren't there. That's, I think, again, just one of those really neat things about how omnipresent the, the microbes are, is that they are there and they're prepared to do this, this work if we just give them the right environment to do it. Mm-hmm. So I guess that brings up an interesting conversation about biofilters in space and microbes coming from Earth, if we're going to be taking those to other planets, what, is that, what does that involve? Yeah, that, that's, well, I think uh, 
that's the the least of it, I think, <laughs> um, that, that it is and that you will be seeding uh, the new environment with what you're bringing. We, and then we, as this is kind of an old, the royal we, one of the groups we were working with on this uh, was a Dutch group. And they sent up a, a version of this technology to the International Space Station um, to see if what the potential was. And they were able to show that the microbes um, can remove contaminants in, in zero gravity. Now, my system uh, has absolutely no applications in, in the International Space Station because it relies on gravity to circulate the water. Um, and in the space station, there is no gravity. So they really can't use what the approach we have here on the International Space Station, but it would have applications on the um, lunar or Mars base when these things come along. Um, one story, uh, again, that just when starting off and doing the, uh, from the space side is that uh, the first five and years that I was working in this, we did swing, I did personally swing a lot with the, the space group. And you hear stories about the, the space stations and, and they just turn into great big petri plates um, with fungus growing all over the darn place. Um, black mold issues on the um, Russian space station when it was up was, was phenomenal because it's basically a very humid environment with a lot of points uh, for condensation. So the microbes were just growing like crazy on it. So um, the microbes in space uh, are an interesting one um, and in that, you know, wh how it would influence uh, terraforming and all of that uh, well beyond my grade, pay grade, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually brings up as well humidity. Um, if you're passing air through water, or a, a water-filled um, matrix in a building, wouldn't that raise the humidity up? And what do you do with all that humidity? Yeah, and that is that is an issue. That's why you have to size these things appropriately. Uh, you just can't put in as big a biofilter as you want and have the building take it. Uh, the humidity load is the big factor, and that's uh, you have to integrate it right into the air handling system and make sure that the mechanical system can deal with the added humidity to it. Um, kind of what you were saying with the use of it in your private home is these biofilters can be can be pretty small and have a pretty big impact. For most people's home, you're probably talking less than half a square meter would be enough to provide the air quality you'd need. Wow. But the other one with the um, humidity is it's kind of a zero-sum um, zero game. Because the same time you're adding the humidity, you're cooling the air by evaporative cooling. Mm. Always, you know, if you go for a swim in the middle of summer, the air is warm, the water is warm, there's a nice breeze. You get out of the nice warm water and into the nice warm air and you instantly start to freeze because the breeze is evaporating the water off your surface. And as it evaporates, it takes the energy out. So evaporation water takes energy and cools the air so as it passes through it might pick up 10 percent relative humidity but you get five degrees celsius cooling of the air so it goes from 23 down to 18 uh, 
degrees Celsius. And the amount of energy it takes to pull out that extra 10% of humidity is almost the same as the amount of energy you got for free with the uh, evaporative cooling. So you're shifting, and the terms are latent and sensible heat loads and all those sort of things. You're shifting between the two energies regimes of the water, but you're not changing its absolute energy level. So in a, in a, when it's fully integrated into the building and you run the air through the biofilter and then into the air handler, the air conditioner, it doesn't change the performance of the building. But if you have it standalone in a space with a fan and you put it's too big for the space, then yes, you can have humidity issues. Mm. Uh, and that's, that, that's where, I, you know, where the, the sizing of it comes into concern. And, and the whole idea of bringing microbes into the building kind of gets most people most uh, occupational hygienists a little nervous. Uh, but I'm, we've done a lot of work looking at how the biofilter impacts spores in the space. I'm very confident that the biofilters don't add to the spore load in the space, but they can be responsible for uh, building up other populations if you don't adequately control the humidity from the system. So it's not that the biofilter is adding spores, but it's allowing spores in other spots to, to grow. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, uh, anybody in uh, Australia will know that um, a lot of people have the, the ducted evaporative air cooling systems in their houses. And I guess that would be a, a, a similar sort of thing. I guess the, the only thing there is when, when you're adding water all the time, you're, um, you're collecting the salts there. I don't know, does the, yes. do the plants deal with that? Yeah. yeah, well, you, you have to, just with the same as your aquaponic system, um, every now and then you have to take some of that water out of this. You, you lose water with evaporation, but before you add water back into it, you have to take a little bit of the water out mm. to get rid of the excess salts. And that's basically what we do with our hydroponic systems, is that depending on the quality of the water that goes into the system, you have to divert a small volume. Uh, to get rid of those excess salts. Um, okay. if, if you're using rainwater or something that's uh, reverse osmosis, like something approaching clear uh, pure water, you don't need to divert much at all. You can basically run them as a closed loop, just topping up for evaporation. Mm. Your comment about the evaporative coolers, one of my first projects in the States was down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was working with a mechanical engineer there, and I was trying to explain to him what we were trying to do and why, and he just wasn't getting it. He didn't see the point. He didn't understand. He didn't see how it was fitting in. And finally, I just said, think of it as a great big swamp cooler. And he instantly knew what I meant. You know, great big, and that's the term they use for those evaporative coolers. Mm -hmm. And that's, so he said, oh, yeah, okay, got it. So we, from then on, we were basically on the same page. So... It's a very good analogy, those evaporative coolers. Mm -hmm. So, so let's move a little bit on to, you know, you formed um, Air Quality Solutions in 2001 and then you uh, partnered with Ned Laws, is that right? So, you, And you, then you did that for, for quite a long time too. Yes. Yeah, so I was with, uh, joined the Ned Law Group of companies in 2007 and then and that's as a, a building building firm, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a building and they have a green roof a division. There's a number of divisions within that uh, umbrella. 
and I was with the uh, living wall side of it. Um, and that was until, um, again, I, I just left that group in uh, March of this year. Mm. Okay. And so what, what are you, what are you working on now? What are you, I guess you're uh, retired or semi-retired. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm seeing if it takes, uh, is, is what <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not too sure what I'm going to be doing next. The, the possibility of retirement is there, but the, the, I'm not too sure if it's going to take or not, but it's certainly, I, I certainly my love for the uh, biology is still very strong and how it can be um, modified or how we can, modify the world around us to, to, to improve people's well-being is still a, a strong part of my interest. So, but not sure what, exactly what I'm going to be doing next. Mm-hmm. So you still have interest in the, the whole um, biological aspect of, um, I guess, creating a probiotic life. Exactly. And, it, it, you know, it is. It's, it's, uh, we can't separate it out. It, it's... It, um, the way it is we 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 are living amongst uh plethora of other life forms and we just have to figure out how to get along mm-hmm. i think one of the the common themes here on the probiotic life when we're talking to all different people from all uh walks of life is the fact that we are actually inextricably connected to nature and uh if we try to work with nature rather than forming our own little, uh, you know, being separate from nature, it actually works better most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, for me, I've always found that for many problems and like engineering or uh, technical problems that the solution is there in nature, we just have to figure out the right sort of box to put that solution in to get it to work efficiently for us. And the biofilter was my attempt to come up with uh, solution for, um, doing indoor air quality. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think it's a very, um, timely technology. Um, well, I guess it, it came before its time in some, in some respects, because, um, there's all this study about the microbiome now and, um, a human gut project, um, earth microbiome project. Uh, do you, do you have any sort of, uh, research that you've done or that you know of, of like the, um, air microbiomes? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is very much an issue for us. Again, that the idea of bringing in this biologically active uh, swamp cooler um, into the indoor space, we had to make sure that we weren't going to make things worse by bringing it in than um, than using today traditional systems. If we, you know, even if we could remove all of the polyene and all of the formaldehyde. If we're adding copious amounts of spores to the air, then it's we're not improving anything. So we spend a great deal of time uh, trying to figure out, make sure that we weren't adding deleterious spores to the space. So uh, we we're, we've done that sort of work. Um, and uh, there's a recent paper that I saw looking at uh, the inclusion of just uh, plants in the indoor space and how it changes the diversity of the, of the microbes growing in the indoor space that, uh, you know, one of the things with buildings is that they do have spores, but there's a very limited number of species associated with it. It's, it's a very narrow base of 
species. And so it's very easy to get epidemics. It's sort of like monoculture of in agriculture. Mm. You get epidemics of things happening quite easily when it's all monoculture. And bringing the biological systems in um, can improve the diversity to give it stability. Uh, we, one of the early papers we did, we looked at the, the, the fungal species associated with the uh, biofilters. And, and many of the species, the, the chap who was doing the work with us, a professor from the University of Toronto, a mycologist, was absolutely astounded because he'd never seen these species of fungus indoors. He'd only seen them in, in woodlands. So, you know, we're basically, uh, and the, the total numbers weren't any higher than most spaces, but the diversity of microbes was probably twice what it was under most indoor settings. And, and they were native woodland species that were coming in and becoming part of the more complex ecosystem. Very interesting. And these aren't ones that you um, introduced. They, they just came with the plants. Yeah, on the plants, in the air, on the people sort of thing. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly not a sterile environment. And so uh, there's a lot of opportunity for introduction of microbes and it's just keeping the ones, uh, keeping it all under control, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So would there be any benefit of, um, you know, in a, in an agroecology system where we talk about um, this uh, succession from um, bare ground and weeds all the way to old growth forest, would there be any benefit in trying to change the um, microbial ecology to more fungal or is that, have you um, studied anything about that? Uh, not well. I know in industrial biofilters, the fungus are actually astounding in what they can break down compared to bacteria. When you look at all the really nasty chemicals, the, uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons and things, um, it's the fungus that break them down. Um, so the but they tend to be much slower at what they do. Mm, okay. uh, microbes, the bacteria do it more quickly um, and uh, are a little more robust. So we certainly don't want to uh, exclude fungus, but we, but we have found, and, and this is, again, based on our work and uh, the work of others in the area of biofiltration, that for most of the VOCs, which are not really uh, hard, that hard to break down by microbes, it's best to to, to use the bacteria. Um, mm, okay. Mm. So if we if we bring it down into um, a, a, a sort of a, a smaller or like a, a, a takeaway, if if maybe not everybody's going to try and build a, a DIY um, biofilter like I'm been playing around with but if we were just able to have plants in our homes with healthy soil was that is that heading in the right direction well <laughs> i used to say plants do absolutely nothing for indoor air quality uh now i say they do very 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 little right, um, okay. because it's not it's not the the plants it's certainly not the green bits and it's all happening in the soil and when you have that healthy soil, that healthy soil is covered by the plant foliage on the top and encased in plastic or ceramic on the sides. Mm. So it's really not being exposed to those contaminants like 
all those microbes are there, but they just can't get to those chemicals. And so the trick is, and that's why we do this hydroponics with the air flowing through it, to get the, the garbage where those microbes can break them down. Um, I mean, I, I'm a botanist, horticulturalist. I, I think plants are absolutely astounding, and my house is uh, usually filled with plants. Um, but I do them because I think they're cool, not because they're. I think they're improving the air quality. Mm. Uh, it's not that simple. It's a bit of an urban myth that plants clean indoor air, and that well, there was a study, um, and I can get the reference for the website, but the where they looked at using potted plants for improving air quality, and they did the math, and basically for each occupant in the building they needed something like six or seven square meters of, of floor space taken up by plants to have oh, wow. any sort of impact. And it's just not practical. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, you know, it, it, they can do it, but they're certainly not efficient. So I'm all in favor of people filling their houses up with plants, but do it because you like the plants, not because you're improving the air quality in the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I saw a study saying that, uh, plants in your house actually can reduce your, your cortisol levels because of um, the psychological impact. But mm-hmm. you're basically saying there's is is not there's not like if you see um, on the internet the top ten plants that clean your air in your house, it's not really going to be doing that much for you. Right. It's not that simple. It's not the plants. It's the microbes. And there is some um, evidence that different plants have different microbes, but uh, I don't think we're at that point yet where we can say, you know, that uh, if you have toluene in the air, you need Diefenbachia, or if you have formaldehyde, you need spider plants. Mm, I don't think okay. I don't think the world's quite that uh, simple. Yes, it's, uh, well, nature is very complex and we're, we're yet to um, really understand. I guess um, my question for you now is, is what would you see going forward with this technology and what you're doing and what you're interested in? How, how would you see um, the future of humanity in terms of living a probiotic life? Yeah. Is, is that, again, my thing again is that nine times out of ten, if you have a technical issue, that the, the answer is there in nature and just figuring out the right box to put that nature in to to get the solutions you need um for me with biofiltration to come up with systems that are as efficient as possible uh simplifying it down to the 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 bare minimum is the the value the return on the biofilter is the the amount of air you clean air you get from the system the cost is the surface area the amount of biofilter you install and so to get the best return, you want the maximum amount of air with the minimum amount of surface area. And that's where I would like to see this work going is trying to, and it's really just improving the efficiency of the system. It's pretty efficient right now, but I think we could probably double the efficiency with a few simple changes that I just haven't been able to think of yet. Really? Okay, so you, you, you just need a lab there where you can go play for a couple of years. Exactly, exactly. That's And somebody to pay the bills. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, this has been very fascinating. I, I feel like uh, we we could um, talk for another couple hours. We're, we're finishing up now or soon. If you wanted to leave, if you really want, um, you know, people in the probiotic life, we, we talk a lot about soil health and, and human health and microbiome. Uh, is there anything that you would really want to um, leave with the listeners today that you would want them to to know about um, what you're doing or uh, anything like that? Tim, with indoor air quality, there's a lot of concern about microbes. Again, that you know, we're always talking about the black molds, the the spore counts, and, and Legionella. Um, people are are inherently afraid of microbes in, the, in their day-to-day lives. And, and I've really been working hard trying to convince people that it's not, again, it's not that simple, is that there are, um, we can take advantage of many of these microbes to actually improve our environment. And they're not necessarily all there, are very, very, very few of them are, are, are in any way harmful to us and with a simple uh, algorithm, so to speak, we can keep the, the risks of bringing microbes into the built environment to an absolute minimum. And it can truly have a, a major impact on the day-to-day operation of buildings. And, it, you know, if the, the amount of energy consumed by the buildings that we spend all our time in, it's, it's, it's a major, I, I believe I've heard that it's actually more spent on conditioning air than, than transportation. Um, so it's a huge place we can make major savings, which will have a huge impact on the environment as a whole. Wow, that's fascinating. It's uh, good to put that into into uh, relative terms like that. More, I guess, are you saying more energy into yes. conditioning air than into transportation? Yeah, I think it was automotive transportation because uh, it, it's a pretty big uh, a pretty big category mm-hmm. thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it is it's a huge amount of energy and it's we don't need that much if we if we just design our buildings better mm-hmm. and then the biofilter can be part of that mm. very interesting or well, is there any ways that um people can reach out to you uh can uh, connect with you uh i'm not yeah. sure you do you have any uh, books that you'd like to or products you want to plug uh i what i'll do is i'll, I'll give you my email and um, Great. We, we can put that, that up on the website, yeah. And I'm in the process of generating a new website for myself, which will be up in the next little while as well. So we can, I'll, I'll forward you that as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Alan Darlington, thank you for joining us today on The Probiotic Life. Oh, thank you very much, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. And, and I, I got to hand it to you for the work you're doing in, in showing how everything is connected and that microbes are a part of it. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again, Alan, for joining us today and thank you all for listening. You can find out what Alan is up to and reach out to him at alandarlington.ca. I'll have the link in the show notes. If you want a little inspiration on how you can start to live a probiotic life, check out our Instagram at the probiotic life. And I hope that this interview has got you thinking about new ways you can create life around you. So may the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers.
Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.